Welcome members of the public, DPH staff, and fellow commissioners to the January 3rd, 2023 meeting of the San Francisco Health Commission. Uh, President Bernal is on a well-deserved vacation, so I have the privilege of chairing the meeting today. And Secretary Morowitz, will you call the roll? Sure. Um, I, I will also note before I do so that this meeting is fully remote today and that the Health Commission, the DPH, is is buying some new equipment which will allow more health commissioners to be in the room and for uh, us to have less equipment issues um that the first round of that's going to be installed this week so hopefully we will um be, be seeing more folks in the room uh oh yes the roll call so i'll start with you commissioner green present commissioner guillermo present commissioner chow present commissioner chong present and uh commissioner guillermo i'm sorry uh, commissioner Dorado. present all right all right Commissioner Chung will now read the land acknowledgement. Thank you, Commissioner Green. Um, the San Francisco Health Commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush Ohlone community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Thank you, Commissioner Chung. Uh, the next item on the agenda is general public comment. Uh, Secretary Morowitz, I think there's a statement to read. Yes. Um, for, uh, at this time, members of the public may address the commission on items of interest to the public that are within subject matter jurisdiction of the commission, but are not on this meeting agenda. Each member of the public may address the commission for up to two minutes. The Brown Act forbids, I'm sorry, for three minutes. The Brown Act forbids a commission from taking action or discussing any item not appearing on the posted agenda, including those raised during public comment. Please note that in each individual is allowed one opportunity to speak for agenda item. Individuals may not return more than once to read statements from other individuals unable to attend the meeting. Written public comment may be sent to the Health Commission at the following email address, the word health dot, the word commission dot, dph at sfdph.org. If you wish to spell your name in the minutes, for the minutes, you may do so during your verbal comments without taking your allotted time. And I see some hands up already. Just folks in the line, a couple things. Um, uh, as we move through the agenda, it's the best uh, practice for you to press star three if you'd like to raise your hand um, as the item is being called to make sure that your hand goes up in time for you to be called for public comment. Um, right now, I see two hands um, available for general public comment, but I will take others as, um, as we move forward. All right, um, caller, I've unmuted you. Please let us know that you're there. I am, it's Patrick Manetzal, and I'm really angry. You didn't call on me in the um, finance committee meeting for the emerging issues and the public comment period. I don't know how you could have missed that my hand was raised, Mark. Mr. Manetzal, you're on three minutes on this, on this uh, clock. Would you like to continue? Yes. You got it. Go. Cost of the five contracts to rescue Laguna Honda across the three consultants now totals 
$26.7 million. That's not counting the $100 million in lost Medi-Cal funding due to the denial of payment for new admissions. The five contracts include HMA's initial contract and First Amendment, and probably an upcoming Second Amendment, Trivactus contract, HSAG's First Contract and First Amendment, the HSAG contract to be the Laguna Honda quality improvement expert, and now HSAG's second contract. The $17.3 million awarded to HSAG to date includes $1 million in hourly billing rate increases of up to 23% that has occurred in the six months between July 2022 and now, with some of the fees reaching $485 an hour. Of interest during your November 1st Finance Committee meeting, Mr. Sangha didn't tell Commissioner Chow HSAG's new second contract was even coming before this commission today. The Board of Suits Budget and Legislative Analysts was told LHH hoped to regain recertification by December 2020. Why are the new contracts running through December 2023. Why? Is it going to take another full year before LHH regains CMS certification and resumes admission? Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Um, I will move on to the next caller. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, please turn off the monitor so that you don't reverberate. Great. Um, Otherwise, I hear myself and then it's bouncing back and forth and, and, and we can't hear you. Okay, is that better? Yes, that's fantastic. Okay, so I've got three minutes on the clock. When the buzzer goes, please know that's your time. Thank you. My name is Robert Reinhardt. I'm a member of the San Francisco Black and Jewish Unity Coalition, and I'm just here today to um, confirm or prize the commission of the activities that are going on with the um, San Francisco African American Reparations Advisory Committee, which is a project or activity within the Human Rights Commission. They are in the process of finalizing their um, years-long report, and it includes the uh, recommendations of their health subcommittee, which are in their final stages of being drafted and for presentation to the Board of Supervisors. Before this meeting, I sent an email copy to Mr. Morowitz asking that it be circulated to members of the Health Commission so that you're aware of the many overlapping ideas and implementation scenarios that they have devised, which also fall within your jurisdiction for uh, execution. And I think it would be uh, um, helpful if the commission uh, at some point, perhaps soon, invites a member of the Reparations Advisory Committee, uh, Health Subcommittee to make a presentation um, as part of your agenda. 
their recommendations ranged for a number of um, different scenarios, including um, some of the mental health and substance use issues that are going to be talked about later during this agenda, um, training of health professionals, staffing of um, clinics, wellness programs throughout the life course. And um, that's why I've sent the copy by email because there are too many to articulate here, but I hope that you will look at those when they get passed on to you. Thank you, that's all of my comment today. Thank you very much for your comment. And commissioners, I received that email during the Finance and Planning Committee meeting and I forwarded it to you about five minutes ago. So that is in your inbox and, and Director Colfax, I will also forward that to you. Um, we have one more caller and one more hand. Caller, please let us know that you're there. I've unmuted you. Good afternoon, it's Michael Lyon. In exactly one month, in exactly one month, Laguna Honda will close and the discharges will begin and more residents will die unless you can show, quote, substantial improvements in substantive personal and resource investments. What have you done? Where is the root cause analysis for each of the 26 deficiencies you were hit with? Where is the in-depth analysis of the training you say will be, will, you will do to, to prevent their recurrence? Where are the recommendations to cure the deficiencies which you were supposed to have given CMS December 1st? Where is the action plan that's due three days from now? Where is the revised closure plan that you've been working on ever since the settlement? Why was the settlement put before the supervisors and approved by them without our even seeing it? Why are you doing all of your business about the closure and resuming discharges in secret closed meetings when hundreds of lives are at stake? Are you so deluded to think that after year, decades of neg negligent and deliberate screwing over of Laguna Honda that we're gonna trust you to do the right thing? Or are you hoping to delay disclosure of your plans to close the hospital and disperse the residents to their deaths so late that nothing can be done about it? We don't know what you have up your sleeves, but rest assured, whatever your plans are, we demand on behalf of San Franciscans, no secrecy, no closure, no discharges, no bread re reductions, in Vietnam, they said, we had to destroy the village to save it. At DPH, you're saying we have to close Laguna Honda to open it. No way, no closure. Thank you. Okay, that's the last comment, commissioners. All right, well, thank you for to everyone for expressing your points of view. We, we appreciate hearing, hearing from you. Um, the next item is the approval of the minutes of the Health Commission meeting of December 20th, 2022. And I believe there is a revision that's been posted. Yes, thank you, Commissioner Green. Uh, commissioners, um, uh, I added on page 10 under um, item eight, the Community and Public Health Committee update. I had, I had a very brief statement on the first version um, of Commissioner Gerardo's uh, summary, and I've added the following. The public health emergency preparedness and response update provided valuable information regarding the city agency and community partnerships with which the DPH is involved to coordinate emergency prepare, uh, preparation and response activities. Three FEPR programs were highlighted, including healthcare preparedness, emergency preparedness, operations, and logistics. The unit regularly conducts exercises with partners to ensure the city is prepared for crises. There's a staff of 14 with plans to increase to 28 staff later this year in an effort to improve response times. 
and community resiliency. Commissioner Gerardo noted that the maternal child adolescent health update noted that with most of the unit staff were deployed uh, to COVID activities in the first year of the pandemic, the unit is striving to return to normal operations. They're currently focusing on dental care and mental health and collaboration building related to service provision to children with health related disabilities. Thank you. Thank you. Um, given that addition, are there any other additions or corrections to the minutes? Okay, hearing none, is there a motion to approve the minutes? I so move to approve the minutes. Is there Second. A second? Public comment. Yes, thank you so much. I see one hand, but I'll just note again, um, folks on the line, we are on item three, the approval of the December 20, 2022 meeting minutes. If you'd like to make comment, you can press star three. Right now I see one hand up. Uh, caller, please let us know that you're there. Hey, I'm at Patrick Manetshaw. Okay, you've got three minutes, Mr. Manetshaw. Regarding the December 28 meeting minutes, although I testified on December 20th during the public comment period and submitted 150 word testimony, Mr. Morowitz has included in the public minutes, I did not have time or room in the 150 word testimony to mention HSAG's contract through December 2022, we reported it would devote 3,642 hours at $400 an hour for a total of 1.4 million, filling the nursing home administrator and assistant nursing home administrator positions using HSAG staff as fillings. HSAG's new contracts through December 2023 adds another 3,700 hours up to $485 an hour for a cost of another 1.7 million for that nursing home and assistant nursing home positions. Across the two contracts, that totals 7,368 hours or 3.1 million for the two nursing home administrator positions. That equals 3.61 FTEs over an 18 month period. Again, this commission should require Laguna Honda expedite conducting a nationwide search and rapidly hire the two nursing home administrator positions to save significant money. Those positions should be filled immediately. Thank you. Thank you for your comment. Um, shall we take a vote on the minutes? Yes, um, I will do a roll call vote. Commissioner Guillermo? Yes. Commissioner Chow? Yes. Commissioner Chong? Yes. Commissioner Gerardo? Yes. And Commissioner Green? Yes. The item is approved. Thank you. Thank you. I think the next item is the director's report. Director Colfax. Hi, good afternoon, commissioners, and uh, happy new year. Uh, Grant Colfax, Director of Health, will highlight a few director report items. Uh, number one, wanted to highlight the fact that Mayor London Breed announced a nearly $34 million state grant awarded to the department to build new inpatient and outpatient psychiatric facilities for youth 
at Zuckerberg San Francisco Hospital, which will include a 12-bed psychiatric inpatient program and a 24-slot intensive behavioral health outpatient program. The grant awarded by the California Department of Healthcare Services will address the urgent regional need for more inpatient and outpatient treatment options for adolescents who are uninsured or on Medi-Cal with capability to serve a minimum of 450 people in its inpatient unit and at least 900 intensive outpatient treatment clients annually. DPH Behavioral Health Services will use the funding to renovate, remodel, and bring to code two large and currently unused spaces at, at the hospital. The 12-bed inpatient adolescent psychiatric hospital will operate on the seventh floor of Zuckerberg San Francisco General. And the sixth floor will expand current outpatient services to include an intensive behavioral health outpatient and partial hospitalization program capable of treating as many as 24 young people at a time. So very exciting and uh, to, that the department received this funding and to, to fill an important need. I also wanted to share with the commission that this season has been a particularly intense one for our hospitals, uh, including Zuckerberg San Francisco General, and therefore included a message that Zuckerberg San Francisco Hospital doc, CEO, Dr. Susan Ehrlich, sent to all staff with regard to the winter surge at, at ZSFG, just to highlight the fact that while we're not seeing the number of COVID cases that we saw last year, we are having a surge of respiratory viruses as well as other illnesses. And just uh, the fact that the census has been extremely high, not only due to COVID, but to flu and RS, RSV, respiratory syncytial virus. Hospitals throughout the city, the, the region, the state, and, include the, in, and indeed the nation are facing similar challenges. The hospital has done a remarkable job. I want to thank the hospital leadership and the frontline workers, including through the holiday season, which for many of us um, is a well-deserved time to take a break and take a breath. Um, and our frontline workers at Zuckerberg, as you know, um, typically don't do that during the season. In fact, it's a very busy season. So just wanted to call your attention to the message that Dr. Ehrlich sent out and to celebrate and acknowledge the work that she and her team, and again, the frontline staff at Zuckerberg are doing each and every day, uh, 24 hours a day. The other piece I wanted to highlight for the commission was during the holiday uh, season uh, this past week, we pushed out a holiday social media campaign on preventing drug overdoses to pre specifically to promote safe New Year's Eve celebrations. The DPH team developed and published a social media campaign on mindful drinking and preventing accidental drug overdoses. The campaign on Twitter and Facebook aimed to raise public awareness of the dangers of fentanyl and how the deadly opioid has been found in cocaine and other drugs. The social media posts educated the public on how to access life-saving tools including naloxone and, overdo and overdose reversing medication. So we also provided tips on uh, mindful drinking and how to access resources for problem drinking and other harm reduction and safety materials. So just wanted to highlight that for the commission as well. And we will now go on to the uh, COVID update slides. So I will run through these slides quickly since the commission has seen the format uh, for our COVID update. Next slide, please. 
So you'll see that we have had an increase in our COVID cases on the far right of this slide. We are at a level of 23.9 cases per 100,000. Again, nothing like we saw last winter where about this time we were approaching that high level of 272 per 100,000. I will say with the this, as you know, as we remember the cases uh, lag a little bit um, from acti you know, high-risk activities, so it takes a while for the cases to show up after holiday seasons or particularly long and busy weekends. So these, I would not be surprised if we see another bump um, higher than 23.9 in the next couple of weeks. We've seen this during our prior, how many winter surges has it been now? Several winter sur surges um, where um, unfortunately we do see infections increase as people's travel increases. What's really remarkable this year is because of the higher level of uh, immunity in our population, uh, including due to vaccines and the bivalent booster, we're just not seeing nearly the increase in cases that we've seen in previous years, uh, even with very highly infectious variants emerging. Next slide. We have 102 people hospitalized um, in uh, the in, in our hospitals across the state. I believe that date needs to be fixed. I believe that is not December 1st. Um, we will make sure that I uh, get that date, if not during this report, um, we will correct this on the slide. Uh, but we have just over 100 people in the um, hospitals across the city with, with COVID. This again includes people who have been hospitalized for COVID as well as people who have been admitted and found to have COVID as well as transfers. Certainly a number that we're watching carefully, but again, nothing like the numbers that we've seen in our winter surges of 2022 and 2021. Next slide. And then in terms of vaccine booster and administration, you'll see we are um, continuing to have some challenges in terms of people taking, accepting the bivalent uh, booster. We are at a total of 34% of the entire San Francisco population boosted with a bivalent. 59% of people between the ages of 65 and 74 and and 55% and of people 75 and up have received it, that, that very important bivalent booster and we're continuing to emphasize the need uh, to get that, that booster for, for everyone who is, who is currently eligible. Next slide. So our COVID case rates remain high, although they're not nearly as high as we saw during the Omicron surge and we're Again, focusing on those um, uh, the vaccine and booster messages. Uh, available surveillance data suggests that RSV and flu have peaked in San Francisco, as I mentioned uh, in the earlier director's report. So our, we're hopeful, cautiously optimistic that our hospitals will not be overwhelmed by this triple-demic, if you will, of RSV, flu, and COVID. For many of us, the holidays are over. Um, not all of us, but um, uh, uh, we want to emphasize that whether or not the holidays are over for you and your loved ones, um, to please continue to protect yourself and others this winter, get the bivalent booster, get the flu shot, and the other uh, steps that we are all very familiar with at this point that we know um, reduce the risk of transmission of of respiratory viruses and COVID in particular. And then again, we're working with the state to plan for the end of the California State of Emergency in February of 2023. Just with regard to the MPOX um, update, I do not have data slides to show you at this time uh, because um, there have been very few cases 
of, of COVID and, and, and Dr. Phil is available if you have specific questions, but I did want to share that in December, um, again, our reporting may not be um, 100% complete at this point since it's only January 3rd, but just to give you a sense of how far we've come, we had a total of two MPOX cases reported in December so far, and we had no cases uh, reported um, since uh, December 16th. So a, a public health success story there um, compared to where we were certainly earlier this summer. And then I did want to also show as part of uh, my director's report, the commission, some of the, the work that has been uh, going on at Laguna Honda um, in terms of some of the restructuring that's going on there to make sure that uh, we are responsive uh, to the needs. So under the leadership of acting uh, Laguna Honda CEO, Roland Pickens, the team has been very uh, working very hard uh, to put into place a structure to ensure that we have the outcomes needed um, to be successfully recertified at Laguna Honda, while also meeting uh, the many uh, settlement uh, agreement uh, requirements. And I just wanted the commission to see this uh, org chart uh, that is being put into place to ensure that once again, we are meeting uh, the goals of the settlement agreement while focusing on that ultimate goal of getting uh, recertified. So I will just go through the top level of this of this org chart just so that the commission sees and understands how the work is being uh, structured so that again, the outcomes are assured that we're meeting our, our goals. With survey readiness, survey readiness will be led by the chief executive officer, the chief quality officer and the chief nursing officer at Laguna Honda that facilities, operations, and capital projects uh, are being led by the Administrative Director of Operations and the DPH Chief Operations Officer, that the action plan for the root cause analysis and response to the root cause analysis will be led by the Chief Executive Officer and the Coincident Commander for, the, for Laguna Honda recertification, that the revised closure plan, again, this is required by the settlement agreement, is being led by the chief nursing officer and chief medical officer. And then the top to bottom uh, assessment of Laguna Honda that's being um, carried out by the health management associates is being led by the chief executive officer and the coincident commanders for Laguna Honda recertification. So wanted to, again, show the commission this work. Again, the holidays for many of us are a time for, for rest and rejuvenation. I assure the commission that um, while the, the Laguna Honda team um, is, 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 is uh, also working to make sure that they, they get their time, uh, they worked very hard throughout the holiday season, including with frontline staff, to make sure that uh, we are, again, making uh, significant progress on our goals to recertification. Uh, and are ready and responsive to whatever CMS uh, will require of us next. I was able to visit Laguna Honda last week. I can say I was incredibly impressed by the commitments um, and the focus that the team uh, led by these people, as well as on the front lines, the staff that are deeply committed to ensuring that residents get the very best uh, quality of care. Um, and that everyone um, supports not only the residents and their family, but the staff supports each other towards recertification on this very challenging journey, but a, a journey that I am uh, optimistic with 
uh, the leadership we have in place and with this structure that the outcomes that are necessary to achieve our goals are definitely um, will definitely be within reach. So thank you. That concludes my director's report. I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you so much. And I think I, the, my fellow commissioners would also agree that we owe a great debt of thanks to the staff at Zuckerberg as well as at Laguna Honda. They have worked tirelessly through holidays when other people are taking vacations, all committed to really giving the best care possible to San Franciscans. So we are really, really appreciative of that. And, and um, I wonder, is there, are there, and also that, that the structure that you have described gives us a great deal of reassurance as well. Um, is there any public comment on this item? Thank you, Commissioner. Yes, I see some hands already. I just want to note um, for folks on the line, we're on item four, the director's report. If you'd like to make comment, press star three. I have a quick statement to read and then we'll move forward. Hey, for each item, members of the public will have an opportunity to make comment for up to three minutes. The public comment process is designed to invite input and feedback from individuals in the community. However, the process does not allow questions to be answered in the meeting or for members of the public to engage in back and forth conversation with the commissioners. The commissioners do consider comments from the members of the public when discussing an item and making requests to the DPH. Please note that each individual is allowed one opportunity to speak per agenda item. Individuals may not return more than once to read statements from other individuals unable to attend the meeting. Written public comment may be sent to the Health Commission at the following email address. Health, the word health, dot, the word commission, dot, dph at sftph.org. If you wish to spell your name for the minutes, you may do so during your verbal comments without taking your allotted time. All right, so I see a handful of hands. Um, we'll start with the first one that I see. Everyone gets three minutes. Folks on the line, when you're when the buzzer goes off, please know that your time is up and I will be muting you within a second or two. All right, first caller, you're unmuted. Please let us know that you're there. Yes, hello. Uh, my name is Melanie Grossman. I am a retired social worker and president of San Francisco's Older Women's League. I am here to speak up for older women at Laguna Honda, um, whose population is reduced because of the slow project. And it will also be reduced by the reduction of beds through the new regula regulation allowing only two persons um, uh, per room. I would like to know where things stand with this particular issue. Um, we have heard about steps for recertification, but we haven't heard anything about the bed uh, reduction, which is very critical. This reminds me of when I was a young social worker and the push for the closure of state hospitals was the issue of the day. Of course, of course, we were all for it because everyone knew that state facilities were bad. But the devil was in the details in terms of where people would go after the institution were closed. Was that the beginning of the homeless tragedy we have today? Um, I met a woman at a party over the New Year's. She was a resident of Laguna Honda and uh, it was fabulous that she was there. She was paralyzed in a wheelchair. She was with an aide but she came to this party and it was wonderful to see her. So uh, we were talking about decertification uh, and reduction of beds and she said, but this is my home, where will I go? What will happen to me? So I ask you, what is the plan to keep Laguna Honda open and preserve those beds? 
there is a there is a shortage of beds in San Francisco, and most of them do not offer half the services available at Laguna Honda. Where would people go? Let's not reduce and close our facilities, but let's let's improve and expand them. Thank you. Thank you for your comment. Next caller, you're unmuted. Please let us know that you're there. Hi, my name is uh, Norman Bagelman and I'm a longtime resident of San Francisco. I would like to urge the commissioners to continue funding Laguna Honda Hospital through the certification project. Thank you very much. Thank you for your comment. Caller, you're unmuted. Please let us know that you're there. Hi, it's Patrick Manetshaw. <clears throat> You've got three minutes, Mr. Manetshaw. Thank you. Um, it's interesting seeing Dr. Colfax one slide on Laguna Honda Hospital, but it doesn't show that any of these documents, the root cause analysis, the um, revised closure plan, or the action plan have been released so members of the public can see it and comment on, on it intelligently to the health commission. Um, new admissions to Laguna Honda stopped fully a year ago on January 14th. There have been no new admissions for a year. During the past year, patients who need to be admitted to a skilled nursing facility have had trouble being admitted to a SNP from San Francisco and have faced out-of-county discharges to skilled nursing facilities far from their families, friends, and medical and social support networks. Laguna Honda's acting CEO, Roland Pickens, told his health commission last summer, Laguna Honda would apply for recertification by August or September and hoped to obtain recertification by November or December. But the last we heard, the second mock survey HSAG was hired to perform by August hasn't been conducted yet. Why hasn't it been held? Has Luna Honda applied for and been granted recertification? This organization chart, as Dr. Colfax referred to it, doesn't provide um, any kind of insight as to when recertification is going to happen and how Laguna Honda is actually going to be staffed uh, by an organizational structure. Mr. Pickens had released an high-level org chart last June, but we don't know how many of those positions have actually been filled and what the structure of the hospital and is going to look like or what kind of patients are going to be served there. Um, it's um, kind of troublesome that this slide doesn't um, uh, indicate how Laguna Honda is going to be structured and what kind of an operational uh, structure it will have. Um, 
again, we really need to see this closure, this revised closure plan that you've kept secret for months. Your plan and, is a Thank you for your comment. Uh, next caller, you're unmuted. Please let us know that you're there. Hi, uh, this is Dr. Teresa Palmer. Can you hear me? Yes, please begin. You've got three minutes. Yeah, I, um, I'm grateful that uh, great efforts are being made and have been made over the holidays, but um, you're really leaving us in the dark. Um, is resumption of forced discharge and closure going to happen on the, in the first week of February? Are bed cuts still on the table? Are you making any headway with our federal representatives to waive the bed cuts? What is in the root cause analysis? It's complete by now, uh, saying that, that we can't see it because the people you hired wrote it is a subterfuge and doesn't make sense. It should be a public document. Um, as, uh, as an elder who may someday need a bed at Laguna Honda, I can only say this whole thing is a nightmare with lack of communication and lack of transparency. For people who need a bed at Laguna Honda now, it is a life and death issue. And how are you integrating with behavioral health services to make sure the elderly, disabled, and poor um, substance users and seriously mental ill people who don't do well at Laguna Honda have a place to go. What is in the revised closure document? You have not shown us the revised closure document. This should be a public document. Please let us know if you are going to if you are going to continue with the bed cuts and continue with the forced discharges and deaths in early February. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. All right, caller, you're unmuted. Please let us know that you're there. Hello, my name is Art Persico. I'm on the board of the SF Great Panthers. I'm going to first object to the secrecy with which this body utilizes closed sessions as it did last month to avoid transparency and violate the spirit, if not the letter of the Brown Act. Secondly, Laguna Honda is a rare and precious public nonprofit not, uh, long-term care facility that we would all want for ourselves and our loved ones and stands out as a good and effective alternative to the for-profit nursing home industry, which has historically done such a poor job of caring for its residents because of that industry's pursuits of profits over people, which has meant death due to COVID for thousands of its residents during the height of the pandemic. I'm 72 and I'm among the large number of San Francisco baby boomers who would like more public long-term care facilities like Laguna Honda and smaller models of home-like care to be there for us as we age and need home and community-based services. For San Francisco's government to evict and thus kill fragile Laguna Honda hospital residents and put others at risk of death or injury is a misguided effort to solve deficiencies at Laguna Honda Hospital. It's unnecessary and a tragedy and should not recur. All of us in San Francisco, especially you commissioners who are the stewards of our public health system in San Francisco are stakeholders in the future of Laguna Honda. So you know, that the resumption of Laguna Honda's normal operations should not be dependent on its closure, nor on forced discharges, nor bed cuts. That defies common sense and medical ethics. All levels of government are responsible for this situation, but you and our SF Health Department and our representatives appointed and elected must stand up for what people in San Francisco want and need, which is a safe and adequately staffed and funded public nursing home 
and the qualified staff to run it. Please do all you can within your power to keep Lagoon Honda open and continuing to serve its fragile elderly residents. Improve it, yes. Shut it down, no. Evict residents, no. Maintain the pause and give the public transparency transparency on this issue. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. That is the last item. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, the last hand on this item, and I'm going to be clearing the hands right now before we move on. The commissioner comments. There we go. Oh, commissioner, I think you're muted. This is thanking everyone for their for their input. Um, all right. I think the next item on the agenda is the DPH Behavioral Health Services update with Dr. Kunins. Uh, actually, Commissioner, I don't think we had um, any questions or comments. Uh, oh, commissioners, I'm sorry. That's okay. That's all right. So I don't know if there are, but let's make sure that we are giving them a chance. Um, commissioners, I see, uh, uh, see Commissioner Chow's hand. I'm not sure who else has any questions. Yes. Uh, I, I actually wanted to thank uh, Dr. Koufax for uh, presenting the uh, Laguna Honda strategy uh, chart. And, and that is uh, comforting to know that uh, there is a uh, large strategy, a, uh, um, a well thought out strategy to uh, answer uh, a number of the uh, issues that uh, have to be addressed. What I wanted to ask was with the ending of the uh, California state emergency, how does that affect and what are, uh, you've indicated that we are, uh, you know, working towards uh, being able to respond to that end. Uh, what will that actually uh, uh, you know, entail and what does that change for, for us here at the department? Thank you, Commissioner Chow. You're referring to the COVID state of emergency. Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. There are several. <laughs> right. yeah. So, so I, I believe that uh, Dr. Phillip is available to provide some details about how that, how the team is um, preparing for that and what the potential implications will be. Dr. Phillip, Thank you, Doctor. Yes, I am. Thank you, Dr. Thank Colfax, and, and uh, good afternoon, Commissioners. Um, Commissioner Chow, uh, really what we're, we're waiting to, to hear more from the state. They have just given us the, the briefest of, of outlines so far about what this could look like, but likely it would be, uh, be rescission potentially of some of the orders that allowed um, some, uh, some, some more efficiencies in contracting and, and uh, use of the additional funds that were coming from the federal government. So we are waiting to hear more about what that, uh, what that state uh, change could look like. Uh, and we are also looking as, as well as coordinating around the Bay Area with other uh, health officers in the Bay Area counties to understand what, uh, if any, uh, changes we would do to our own health orders locally. So more information to come on that, but we're looking at all of those critically. We are making changes. We have made changes before the holidays to align some of the wording uh, with the, the state's order and, and clarify some definitions, but there were no substantive changes. But we do expect that as the state removes their orders and their requirements that we will follow suit as many of the other counties in the Bay Area have done. And uh, so we will look at isolation and quarantine orders and, and, and directives. We'll look at our general uh, health orders as well. So that will all be in process over the next uh, the next couple of weeks. 
uh, to really prepare for the end of the statewide COVID emergency and to understand what the implications would be here as we also align and remove many of those requirements. So um, as Dr. Colfax has been saying, this really would be leading up to COVID becoming another one of the uh, respiratory illnesses that we do prepare for, that we uh, uh, boost vaccination rates for, and that we are uh, working with our health systems and our community partners on, but it would no longer have the sort of special status of the emerging uh, virus uh, emerging pandemic that it did for the past few years. Uh, thank you. Uh, but uh, I, I just wanted to clarify if uh, we're saying it ends in February, are we talking about the end of February or the beginning of February that uh, they're intending to, uh, you know, end the state order? I believe it is mid-February, but I will I will double check that and make sure that the commission has the date. Okay, because uh, we're coming up on the then, and and uh, if we could get uh, continued updating as to what it might mean to our department. Thank you very much. Yes, certainly. Thank you. I do not see any other hands. I I realized I had one question as well for Director Colfax. What are the next key dates uh, to report on the progress to CMS, just in terms of expectations on Laguna? So um, let me just bring up my notes here. We are scheduled to provide, and again, I will confirm this with, with acting CEO, Roland Pickens. So our action plan report to CMS in terms of the accomplishments of the action plan uh, are due February 10th. So that's one of the uh, one of the one of the key dates. And then um, I can ask uh, CEO Pickens to provide any additional details after that. I, I don't have the specific details after uh, that February 10th date. But that does give us time from now to February 10th. That is correct. Great. Yes. Good. All right. That that was the only question I had. So now we can move on to the behavioral health report. Uh, good afternoon, commissioners. Uh, very nice to see everyone. Uh, I'm very pleased to be here to provide a report uh, regarding behavioral health services and to provide an update and answer some of the commissioner questions that, that we received. Next slide. Um, in today's presentation, I'll provide just a brief uh, overview about some accomplishments, uh, focusing in particular on some of our key metrics that we are still developing for mental health service, uh, San Francisco, an overdose prevention update, an update about care courts, and an update uh, of which you heard some from Dr. Colfax about children, youth, and families expansion. Um, I know that you, um, uh, and I'll be presenting a shortened version, I know, uh, just for the sake of time. Next slide. Uh, you have seen this slide before, just to ground us that the mission and vision for behavioral health in, at DPH is to promote uh, behavioral health for all San Franciscans, preventing illness, 
aiming to intervene early and promoting interventions uh, that promote health outcomes in an equitable fashion. When behavioral health care is needed, we are aiming for it to be proactive, timely and available, equitable and outcomes driven. Next slide. I'm very pleased to announce that uh, we have a new senior staff member in behavioral health, and that is Emo Momo, who is rejoining us from um, uh, joining us from Alameda County, but rejoining San Francisco De uh, Department of Public Health, where he previously served as both the director of our Equity Group and also our Mental Health Services Act Group. He is now rejoining us in the role of our managed care director. And with that, the um, full intended complement of senior staff members is complete. And you can see the senior leadership team for behavioral health on the screen in front of you. Uh, next slide. I'm now turning to uh, our performance metrics or some of our earliest ones from Mental Health SF. Uh, as you all will recall, the primary focus of Mental Health SF is to help people with serious mental illness and or substance use disorders who are experiencing homelessness get off the street and into care. Uh, that is from the uh, legislation. What you have in front of you is our current uh, an, an population analysis of uh, using both DPH data as well as uh, HSH, uh, housing, homelessness and supportive housing data to uh, understand that among people experiencing homelessness, approximately 8,700 of them have a serious mental illness and or substance use disorder. This is the focus population for mental health SF. Of note, among the people with a, a serious mental illness or substance use disorder, Approximately 84% have a substance use disorder and 51% have a serious mental illness. And you can see that there is a significant minority of people who have both. Next slide. You have seen this slide before, um, and these are the 11 selected key performance metrics for mental health SF. What I am sharing with you today are the metrics that are highlighted in yellow. I'll be just sharing uh, number five, decreased wait times for ICM services, and you have seen the rest in your packets. We are aiming to get work through uh, both initial reporting and then regular reporting on each of these 11 metrics going forward. Next slide. So turning now to our, our, our performance metric that I was excited to share with you today, and that is for intensive case management. I wanted to first remind uh, you and us about what ICM, as we call it, consists of. It is a level of care that provides intensive outpatient behavioral health care treatment. So it's a bit of a misnomer that it's called case management. So it's treatment with wraparound services, including case management for people with the most complex mental health and substance use disorders. Clients who are eligible for ICM level of care must have a mental health diagnosis causing significant functional impairment or symptoms as well as imminent risk of decompensation or worsening without treatment. They must also meet additional qualifying 
categories, and you can see these there, which are really measures of the severity of their illness and impairment of function. Services that are provided by ICM programs can include an array uh, of, of interventions tailored to the person's needs. These include behavioral health treatments, both psych, uh, pharmaco pharmacologic treatment and psychotherapeutic or counseling. Uh, they perform, offer crisis intervention, case management. They offer services in community or in the field. They offer peer-based services and then importantly linkage to other services the person might need as well as enhancing or supporting family supports. Next slide. At the moment in this fiscal year, we have a total of 14 ICM programs serving adults. Um, this includes, just for your awareness, uh, a subtype of program called Full Service Partnership, which has been a type of program that the Mental Health Services Act has funded and includes some additional uh, services not Medi-Cal reimbursable. It includes age-specific programs, including transitional age, youth programs, and older adult programs, and also includes programs that target uh, that focus on people who are involved with the criminal legal system. This past year, we had an average client census of approximately 1,000 and 177 new clients began ICM treatment in the last fiscal year. Uh, next slide. For the first time, we have calculated what is the uh, median wait time for new clients, aiming to understand how long people were waiting to get into care. We found that the median wait time was 35 days. The wait time begins the day a client's referral is received by an ICM program and ends when the treatment episode starts. For clients who waited for longer than 10 business days, a majority, 56%, receive some sort of routine, other level of behavioral health care while they're waiting. So they did get some care. Next slide. I want to now share with you some, and I know this is probably small on your screens. Uh, we uh, stratified uh, these wait times by age, gender, and race and ethnicity. And so what you can see here is that uh, uh, by age, older adults had longer wait times than uh, other adults and transitional age youth, that men waited longer for care than women, that among uh, whites, and, whites and Asians had longer wait times than Black African Americans and Hispanic and Latinx folks. Just note that we performed statistical analyses on most of these. They were non-significant, meaning no difference statistically except for the stratified by gender. Next slide. And then uh, finally, we also stratified wait times by uh, language spoken. We learned that uh, folks who speak English as their primary care, uh, as primary language uh, had a longer wait time than folks speaking other languages and people experiencing homelessness had uh, a lower uh, median days of wait time than folks who are housed. Um, we are, uh, and let me go to the next slide and then I'll save my wrap up points. 
Um, we are aiming to reduce these wait times and also to understand where there are differences among groups to find ways to reduce those differences, although by and large, they were not statistically significant except for by gender, as I mentioned. We have a number of countermeasures that we are aiming to complete implementation, including increasing workforce uh, and helping uh, CBOs ex uh, fill staffing vacancies, expanding and by expanding the provider contracts to add new staff. We are also aiming to issue an RFP to establish new ICM services and, and, and increase capacity. We're hoping to get that RFP out by the end of the month. Additionally, we are working to improve flow um, for folks that are ready to step down care into routine outpatient care. We are working to step them down as appropriate uh, and with supports in order to free up more spaces. In order to increase their supports and step down care into regular outpatient care, we have added some resources for better retention and stabilization by adding some case managers. Um, as, as one of the commissioners asked, um, uh, we, um, we are in the process of setting goals for the wait times and as we add resources, we'll be able to understand the impact more closely and be able to tweak our plan as we go, also to understand whether the resources, as someone also act, are sufficient to really make a dent. We believe that they are at present. We are aiming to do uh, publish these wait time data uh, on a six-month basis, and so we will have um, uh, not hopefully not long lag times before continuing to present these uh, to you all and to the public. Next slide. Um, I now want to turn our attention to overdose and our approach around overdose. And I know I have presented these overdose death data to you all. I know that you all know that this is a crisis uh, being driven uh, by fentanyl, but also substances, including the stimulants, cocaine, and methamphetamine. Between January and November 2022, there have been 556 overdose deaths that are considered uh, a preliminary count done by the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. We um, did see a decrease in the final numbers from 2020 to 21, and we anticipate uh, that we will not exceed 2021 numbers, but need to wait for finalized numbers here. Next slide. I next want to share um, our and re really review our department's approach to uh, reducing overdose deaths and reducing uh, problematic substance use in the city. I think you will all be familiar with um, the stages of change model that informs uh, really all scientific work around substance use. Um, and that is a model, as you can see on the bottom of the slide, that aims to match different interventions by a person's stage or readiness for change, ranging from on your left, pre-contemplation, meaning the person's not even thinking about making a change, contemplation, the person is thinking about making a change, but not ready necessarily to take any steps. Preparation means that a person is preparing to make a change, 
action, they are in change mode, they are making changes, and then maintenance means that a person has made change and they are trying to maintain it. Um, our goal with our overdose uh, prevention work and our substance use work is to strengthen that continuum, a continuum of evidence-based services in order to save lives, matching services for to a person's stage of change. So uh, as you can see on the left, you can see overdose prevention programs, syringe access programs, aiming to engage a person in um, life-saving activities that may or may not require them uh, or demand of them that, that substance use significantly decrease or, or cease. As a person moves along a stage of change and as our interventions help move a person across those stages of change, we get to the right-hand side uh, in which it is the most formal uh, and long-lasting interventions, including residential and outpatient treatment. This, uh, for in, in the case of opioid addiction, uh, ought to include the use of a medication or have a medication be offered. This is true of alcohol addiction as well, both of which interventions are the most effective in reducing drug use and helping a person maintain uh, cessation of drug use. This also includes environments that are not formal treatment environments, but are commonly called sober living or recovery housing. All of this helps a person uh, uh, be in a maintenance stage of change. Next slide. And so we've had a lot of questions, and I know this commission is uh, aware of the conversation, um, is that harm reduction is one part of this continuum of services, which I just elucidated. San Francisco, along with your, the commission's uh, support, uh, have passed uh, supporting uh, syringe access as early as 1992, uh, adopted harm reduction policy in 2000, uh, and the Board of Supervisors passing overdose prevention legislation just recently in 2021. I want to um, just remind all of us that harm reduction approaches are not standalone approaches in a system of care, but need to be part of, embedded, and knit together with a continuum of services so that as an individual's needs and goals change, a range of services, a range of interventions are available to meet those needs, prevent overdose, keep the person alive, mitigate or eliminate other negative consequences of drug use like infectious diseases. We know from decades of research, and as you all know, harm reduction programs save lives, have been shown to save lives, have been shown to reduce the harms associated with drug and alcohol use. And really importantly, as I have in the last bullet, harm reduction programs serve as entry points into formal drug treatment, as well as other services along the continuum. We know from um, other scientific studies that, that people who are regular users of syringe access programs and overdose prevention programs have a two to five-fold increased rate of treatment entry. And so we know that, this sir, that the harm reduction approach can serve as an entry and linkage to treatment. Next slide. Um, 
Some of you have asked some of our metrics around our overdose plan, including uh, the fact that within one to two years, we aim to increase citywide naloxone distribution from a 40, about 47,000 kits to 75,000 kits annually, and aiming to have naloxone available in at least 50% of supportive housing facilities. Within three to four years, we are aiming to increase citywide naloxone distribution to 100,000 kits annually and have naloxone available in 100% of supportive housing facilities. We are also um, ambitiously aiming to in reducing fatal overdose by 15% citywide by 2025 and reducing racial disparities, which I did not mention, and of which uh, Black African Americans experience the highest rates. We are aiming to reduce racial disparities uh, by 30% by 2025. Um, so these are important metrics that we uh, are really working very hard to achieve with our broader overdose prevention plan, which including strengthening the entire continuum of services. Okay, um, next slide is uh, I wanted to provide the commissioners, uh, whoops, back one slide, sorry, I jumped the gun. Um, just a brief uh, care court overview and update. I think as folks will be familiar with, the care court was signed into law by Governor Newsom uh, in just this past September. This is uh, specifically the community assistance, recovery, and empowerment care court legislation. It's intended to serve people who are unlikely to survive safely in the community without supervision. The, and that, the, that these folks need services and supports to prevent relapse or deterioration that would be likely to result in grave disability or serious harm. There is a phased rollout that will begin next October, October 2023, with a first cohort of which we are a member, along with, I believe, six other counties. We have received one-time funding for planning and implementation of the program and are working closely with the courts, the state, our mayor's office, of course, and other key stakeholders. Um, our planning team is uh, in progress. We are estimating both the population, what we anticipate to be eligible, as well as resource needs that, that may come along with that. That we are have wide population estimates and, are, and will uh, anticipate more clarity as we further refine the enrollment and assessment investigation processes. Next slide. Uh, you heard um, uh, already from Dr. Colfax, so I won't re-review uh, re it here, but we're very excited about the, the what is still a conditional grant award from the California Department of Healthcare Services, which has the promise of expanding uh, both in and, and intensive outpatient programs for, for use uh, in, in San Francisco. Two other... Uh, uh, updates on kids services is we are in the process of developing a Medi-Cal contract with UCSF uh, in their new for their services in their new Pritzker psychiatry building, their child, teen, and family center. This will provide additional capacity to serve youth uh, in outpatient treatment, psychiatry, as well as more specialized evidence-based services such as uh, eating disorders and for other conditions. Um, 
Additionally, we are excited about um, our Family First Prevention Services Act, part one, in, which is really in partnership with our colleagues in child welfare and juvenile probation, which will allow further uh, expansion of, of kids' services. In response to a couple of questions, thank you, commissioners, for your interest here. The UCSF program will uh, focus on outpatient services um, using evidence-based practices. It will not be solely on youth experiencing frequent hospitalization and specialized conditions, but we expect the programs to be able to treat people with kids with severe illnesses in order to prevent uh, uh, hospitalization, but also have capacity, improve our public capacity to treat uh, specialized conditions. Um, uh, and then the wait list, we, we are aware at UCSF has, has been long, um, but the current wait list is, is for services that are actually pri for privately insured uh, youth, so not uh, youth with Medi-Cal or uninsured. This is a new contract, so we expect that they will be able to expand services, um, but they still need to get uh, Medi-Cal services. In terms of additional information about the FFPSA, that's the bottom bullet, there's still a lot that's unknown because the state is working on a plan with all county and the federal government. The main objective of the FFPSA is to prevent youth from entering the child welfare system. And it includes or has the potential to include a number of prevention practices that are non-clinical um, that community settings can implement in addition to clinical treatment services. So we're excited and it will still, it will still uh, we know, evolve and we should have more information and happy to update the commissioners as, as we have it. And I think, next slide. That was lightning speed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for that update. Um, is there any public comment on this item? Folks on the line, if you'd like to make comment on item five, the DPH Behavioral Health Services update, please press star three. I currently don't see any hands. Just give it a few seconds to make sure. All right, there are no hands. All right, what about commissioner comments and questions? Commissioner um, Guillermo, I see. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, and I forgot to say just before we get to questions, there were a couple of unanswered questions I realized about some numbers, about number of people served by uh, Summer Rise and number of folks uh, served in another service, and I have to get back to you all. We will get back to you on those specific questions. Apologies, I don't have them with, we were not able to get them today. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Commissioner Guillermo. Okay, thank you. And thank you so much for that report and for the new data uh, uh, that provides us, I think, with some uh, really important information as we continue to monitor the progress of all of our initiatives uh, in this arena and uh, good news on all the funding uh, that we're getting. So glad to hear about that. Um, I had a question about the harm reduction um, uh, um, sort of slide or the piece that you're talking about. I know that um, uh, as you say, there are decades of research that sort of prove the um, the efficacy uh, and the impact of harm reduction. But I'm wondering, are there uh, 
uh, data or uh, any research that is specifically focused on our efforts in San Francisco uh, that we can point to. Because um, I think with just given, I think the, the visibility uh, of our approach uh, and the policies associated with it, uh, it would be, um, I, I think, just a, a, an important contribution to the field if there uh, are such studies. You know, that that is a great question and and uh, others on the line may actually know the answer to that. I, I will just say that um, one of the successes in terms of HIV, uh, including the data from San Francisco, is that there is an extremely low prevalence of HIV starting from really um, much earlier in the HIV AIDS epidemic that was attributed to the early establishment of syringe access programs in San Francisco. Um, and so that is an example of San Francisco being a relatively early adopter in, in distribution of uh, uh, hygienic uh, injection equipment. And those data are indeed uh, in part both national data that in which the San Francisco data rolls up in and specific uh, San Francisco data I'll also um, just um, offer that we have been uh, increasing the number of people uh, receiving uh, the medication buprenorphine, which has been shown to decrease uh, drug substance use, uh, opioid use, and to um, likely decrease overdose deaths. And San Francisco has seen, and those are local data, increasing uptake of buprenorphine over the last mm, at least eight or so years. This reflects uh, the, the number of programs offering buprenorphine both in public settings, in, in sort of specialty care, meaning substance use disorder treatment care, as well as uh, our other innovative programs, including our street medicine program, including um, our, something called our bridge clinic at the, as, and thanks to our colleagues at Zuckerberg, uh, as well as Prop C funding, as well as our uh, addiction uh, consult team. So these are all feeding up into what we're seeing at a city level of increases in buprenorphine treatment. Lastly, I'll just mention, this is probably too long, um, the city is, uh, was an, early adopter and was in uh, part of um, and has published on naloxone distribution uh, and its successes in naloxone distribution. And prior to fentanyl, the early adoption and really innovation in getting out naloxone uh, into the hands of people who themselves were at risk of overdose or who were in social networks where their uh, friends and loved ones were at risk for overdose. Um, uh, was thought to delay or stave off increases in overdose deaths that many, many, in fact, most medium and large sized cities were seeing through the resurgence of heroin nationally. What we have not escaped from is in the context of the resurgent or the entry, the widespread entry of fentanyl into the drug markets here in San Francisco our very strong systems of care uh, likely have diminished or mitigated the increases in overdose deaths that we've seen 
but um, it's clear we're not a match against the entry of, of fentanyl into the drug supply here. And that is why having, uh, in our view, a comprehensive plan that is a full continuum of services is really vital if we're going to turn this around, which we believe we can. I think that that, you know, I mean, and that is sort of the part of the point that I was, uh, I'm trying to um, um, elucidate here, that the focus on harm reduction makes it appear, you know, from the general public makes it appear as if it's a sort of a singular strategy, uh, when in fact, it's a, you know, it, it's quite uh, complex. And if there was research or data that sort of focused in on the part that harm reduction played in the constellation of approaches and outcomes that, you know, that is something that could be, I think, um, shared sort of more publicly with sort of the, the public, the masses, uh, as opposed to, you know, sort of, you know, the understanding that we might have as those who, you know, uh, you know, are, are, is part of our sort of responsibility to kind of you know, better understand all of this. But so I, I don't know if there is um, any way to um, carve that out or to better explain the role that harm reduction has in the, the overall. But I, I do think that from a communication standpoint and understanding and support from the public of the policies that we have, it would be really important to try to, uh, I guess, uh, make it clear uh, the relationship uh, or non-relationship that this particular strategy has to the overall issues that we uh, experience uh, in San Francisco around uh, those um, uh, those health issues that are related to uh, uh, harm reduction uh, approaches. Thanks. That's very that's very helpful. Thank you. I appreciate the the question and comment. I believe Commissioner Gerardo has a question. Yes, I do. And thank you very much for um, this report. It was really helpful. Um, and also, you know, just to, trying to answer with my question on the UCSF program with the Medi-Cal contract. But I guess my, you know, your answer, I totally understand those with private insurance. It's, you know, uh, it's a six to 12 month wait list. Um, but then with this new Medi-Cal contract, are there going to be two doors then for the specialized services, let's say for eating disorders, <coughs> private insurance, which now is at least nine months from my referrals and the Medi-Cal kids will be kind of separated. I, I guess I'm not, I guess I'm most concerned, put it that way, uh, whether or not we've got two doors or are they going to then for these specialized services, hire more people and have more of a comprehensive, let's say eating disorders program, no matter private or Medi-Cal. That's what I guess I'm concerned about. And it sounds like specifically worsening the wait list for other other kids. Is that is that also what you're, do I hear what you're implying there as well? Possibly, but it's like, okay, if you, have Medi-Cal, then you're first in the line. And then anybody else, I mean, is back in the queue because the queue is already long. So I guess my concern is how this comprehensive, how this, 
program, which is absolutely needed. And I think it's wonderful, but I'm just concerned with the overall direction because their specialized services, which are great, are extremely um, staff limited, very staff limited. And so I, if those kids are being discharged from inpatient to outpatient with, you know, a secondary specialized condition, I want to, I guess my concern is that they are in fact treated, but does that, do they supersede somebody else? Well, or is I, that I, not, we don't know yet. <laughs> Um, well, I'll just say that we're still at an earlier phase and certainly it is, you know, our um, job as the city and my, our, my, our role to find uh, and, and ensure care for, for kids and adults who are publicly insured or uninsured. And that is our, as you know, our primary focus and, and responsibility um, there. Um, and so I just want to say what's, I think, and hopefully quite extraordinary about this is that there has been a dearth uh, of these kind of specialized services for, for kids with public insurance or who are not insured. And that is obviously uh, of concern to all of us. I, I also hear what you're saying, which is writ large in the city um, uh, is a problem for uh, commercial insurers. Uh, and uh, and and for issues around parity of access uh, with behavior, for behavioral health and physical health, as you know, I think you're raising some important workflow issues. And um, certainly, as the pro as we uh, implement the program as UCSF, again, they are they are responsible for the workflows and ensuring that the people seeking their services. Are, have timely access, which I'm hearing from you is, is, is a problem. No, thank you. I would appreciate it. It's just, for example, um, the fabulous services at CCDC, you know, for many of our kids that we see, their wait list is, is really long right now. Um, you know, there's just a lot of kids needing services. So I'm just concerned with this funding that in the planning that kind of the feeder to the fire, so to speak, at UCSF to make sure that the kids are served in a timely manner. And thank you. But thank you for all of your um, information. It was very helpful. Thanks. Thank you. I see Commissioner Chow's hand. Thank you. Uh, and, and thank you for this presentation. Uh, I, I was uh, really struck that um, you were able to define the key population that you're really trying to target and uh, breaking it up into uh, the uh, homelessness to the serious mentally ill and so forth. And in the past, you've given us metrics in terms of housing and all. So I know, I know the program is still uh, essentially in development but I would like to uh, then uh, suggest that uh, as you are looking at your metrics, whether it be naloxone and 50,000 and 75,000, 100,000 and all, that we could then see this as uh, what your final goal is and where you are 
in terms of progress uh, when, when we are looking at your core measures. And um, uh, uh, obviously as the programs are started, there are no um, you know, comparisons that are available, but it'd be nice to know as we go along where you are in terms of being able to uh, get to those goals or if not, you know, what are some of the challenges and impediments and what else you might need in order to get to them? So uh, I, I, I find that your uh, core metrics are, are really um, important as they're drawn out and kind of looking for uh, more of a, I guess, quantifiable uh, achievement, which then would help uh, us understand the progress being made over these coming years, because this is obviously very important and very expensive and, uh, uh, you know, a city committed project. So um, uh, thank you for actually laying this out and continuing that. Uh, I, I was curious about two things. Uh, while you had statistics showing that certain groups did or did not have a disparity, then you uh, sort of ended by saying they're not statistically significant. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm just a little concerned about that because uh, I was going to ask you, if you're saying that those who don't speak English were able to get services faster than those who did, then, uh, but it's not really significant. Does that mean that we're, you know, we didn't have a big enough sample size and we're not working on that? Uh, and, and likewise for the other very important questions you raised, because you raised them, you presented what sounded like opportunities, and then you basically say, but I don't think they are because they're not significant. So are they opportunities or are they not significant and uh, or uh, inadequate sampling so that we need larger numbers? That, that's my first question. My second one is when you say we had a conditional grant, what are those conditions? <laughs> Are we really, you know, very close to getting it and they just need to sign it or we have to show that we can build the two floors or what? So. Let, let me take the second one first. <laughs> um, the second one is um, we're just, we're, we have, we, we received the grant. It was awarded to us. We need to go through the submissions of paperwork and final approvals. Um, so we are, we've been asked to call it conditional. Oh, so okay, I, I didn't need to alarm anyone. <laughs> Apologies. Um, it's my trying to be precise. And the same may be the first part of problem too, which is, um, you know, I think that we don't fully know because this is really the first time we're looking at these data in this way, whether it is a, a power problem or a sample size problem and that the differences we're observing we don't hold up statistically and and whether we want to call them as a disparity or not i think at this point we are we so for sure with gender as and and we want we will be trying to understand what's going on there with the other differences that we saw we also want to take them as opportunities and not ignore them but I think as we continue to accumulate data points, we will know whether they are stably this way. Is this, uh, you know, the whole sample is really 177 people. So okay. once you cut it into smaller sections, it's not as stable of estimates as we'd like to see. The fact that we can look at these data and begin to 
think and see if they're stable, unchanging, not changing. We are seeing all of this as opportunity to understanding how our programming is or isn't reaching people in a in a timely fashion. So, um, so and and perhaps I should have just been silent on those issues because I think we'll we'll know more and and feel more confident in in what are true differences that we're seeing and our stable differences that we really need to address. Great. So you're not giving up on those measures, just simply at all. Yeah. At all. Okay. No, that's at great. All. No. Thank you. That's uh, uh, very helpful, and and the uh, clarity that the uh, the conditional is less conditional and more solid. Thank you. Thank you. I, and I would like to amplify on what uh, Commissioner Chow said. I think these uh, mental health uh, core metrics are really terrific. It's clarity that that I think is is so helpful. Um, but I'd be interested in knowing um, when or if you'll have goals and stretch goals to accomplish some of the um, percentage increase, percentage decrease. And as part of that, I'm, I'm curious to know, you know, in years gone by, we've had such uh, staffing issues. And while the emergency declaration has certainly helped a great deal, I'm wondering what your thoughts are, and it kind of was uh, tangentially discussed in this whole issue of UC staffing. To what extent will, will staffing be a rate limiting factor in things like intensive case management and being able to shorten those days? And then I think another question that, that I'm wondering if you have any data on are, you know, there's a certain percentage of individuals who might qualify that may choose not to participate in these programs. So as we look at the numbers of, of you know, homeless persons and individuals who might qualify for the programs, do you have any sense for, you know, what the uptake might be? And, and if, if it's great, great. And if not, how we might um, take steps to encourage people to participate all the while having to balance that against what we can realistically provide. Um, those are great questions, and I know, and I know, Commissioner Green, you asked some version of them, which I didn't. I partly answered. I realize. Um, so I think we have really set forth very clear um, overdose prevention goals in terms of naloxone kits, in terms of decreasing deaths, and they are for sure stretch and ambitious ambitious goals that we are. Have, we think that we have the means to push on aggressively. We are still working through um, our goals for decreasing wait times. I think seeing these data for the first time really gives us a starting place. We, um, and we, I think, would concur that staffing will challenge our ability uh, to ramp up as quickly and as consistently as we would like. As I think you all know, um, we are undertaking a, a wage analysis through Mental Health SF as part of, as one of the drivers to staffing gaps. Um, we are in better shape than we were before the emergency declaration, that is for sure. Um, and I think with these kind of wait time data, we will have the ability to understand as well as some staffing analyses that we're doing on the side, we'll be able to understand more clearly the, the direct or indirect relationship between those two. Um, I think the other thing that you're raising is who declines services or doesn't show up to services. We are um, undertaking that in a variety of ways. We don't have yet the capacity to do exactly what you're describing. I'm, I'm 
and I'm not sure we're gonna get there soon, but we have a related measure, which is we are going to be, as you saw in our 11 metric list, uh, looking at people who have a crisis service, like a emergency department visit or like a 5150, what proportion end up in routine care and who fall and the proportion of people who fall off, whether they decline, whether they don't have a timely appointment, whether they are not able to be found because they don't have a, a, a fixed address, we won't be able to capture because we're using administrative data, but the outcome is we want someone to be in regular care, routine care, and that we are aiming to measure. And I believe that that kind of gets at uh, importantly what you're suggesting. If we can't get people into care, we can't help, we can't help them. Um, and so that is of, of vital importance. As we are learning, and as you can imagine, the data streams are complex and, um, and we are working to validate some of those, define what we mean by routine care, validate the data that we do have um, in order to get a baseline and then obviously improve it. We are working to improve. We're not waiting to work on to improve, but to, to have measures that we can follow in that regard. Thank you. And you know, when you look at um, Narcan in particular, where do you put that on the spectrum of harm reduction versus treatment? I mean, as you're looking at the efficacy, where does that land? Um, I would, I, you know, I think it's not like there's, I think there's probably not one answer to that question. I, I think that I would uh, frame it as a harm reduction intervention. It is helping people importantly uh, stay alive. If they do not stay alive, they cannot change their drug use. They cannot uh, enter into recovery. And so I would put it on the harm reduction end of the spectrum. That said, we know, as you all know, that return to drug use or relapse is, um, uh, is a common event among people with a sub substance use disorders and offering naloxone to people who are in treatment or in recovery um, is really important because uh, should a relapse occur, we want uh, the person to survive. And with so much fentanyl in the drug supply these days, um, what what probably historically has been a lower risk uh, event can be fatal because of fentanyl. And so we want to make sure that uh, everyone at risk has access to naloxone and people who know people at risk of overdose have access to naloxone. And so uh, it it should be, we think, an intervention that happens across the continuum of services. Thank you. And again, thank you so much for this excellent presentation. We will look forward to hearing about your successes and maybe some challenges going forward. Thanks so much. Thanks. So uh, the next item on the agenda is the DPH annual report of gifts received in fiscal year 2021 to 22. And Drew Murrell will present. Good afternoon, commissioners. Uh, I'm happy to be here consistent with the uh, admin code and DPH policy and acceptance of gifts. Um, please find in the commission materials uh, a report detailing $3.1 million of gifts DPH accepted for the course of uh, fiscal 21-22. Uh, approximately two-thirds of it comprised of state uh, gifts of PPE and other sorts of equipment 
in support of our COVID response. Um, the details are in the uh, commission meeting materials, but happy to talk through any questions you might have. Thank you. Is there any public comment on this item? Folks on the line, um, we're on item six, the annual report of gifts received. This is, by the way, um, not an action item. This is just a discussion item. Uh, please press star three if you'd like to comment on this. I see no hands, but let's give it a few seconds to make sure that folks have time. No hands, commissioners. All right, and are there any commissioner questions or comments on this item? I do not see any hands and we're obviously grateful for the gifts and the recognition of the great work that is being done that these, these gifts uh, represent. So thank you. Uh, the next item is the resolution making findings to allow teleconference meetings under California government code section 549353E. <laughs> uh, commissioners, this is the same resolution that you've been passing for, I think it's 18 months or, you know, 16 months. It allows you all to have hybrid meetings, which we normally have. Um, and so I'm ha happy to answer any questions, but it's the exact language. I just change the date every month. All right. And is there any public comment on this item? Folks on the line, we're on item seven um, with the resolution for hybrid meetings. Please let us know if you'd like to make public comment by pressing star three. But again, I don't see any hands. All right, well, is there a motion to approve? I'll, I'll move approval. Second. I second. I'll do a roll call vote. Um, Commissioner Gerardo? Yes. Commissioner Chung? Uh, yes. Commissioner Guillermo? Yes. Commissioner Chow? Yes. And Commissioner Green? Yes. All right, the item passes, thank you. All right, the next item in the agenda is Finance and Planning Committee update. Commissioner Chung? Yes, uh, thank you, Commissioner Green and um, commissioners. Um, the Finance and Planning Committee um, committee met um, earlier today um, to um, go over the January 2023 contract report and also um, one, two, three, four, five, five, um, five contracts, um, new contracts, and um, and. Unfortunately, we um, ran out of time um, to have the first quarter financial report. So we have um, tabled it again um, for the second time um, till February. And, um, and also we are stipulating that if we continue to run out of time because of the number of contracts that we have to approve, um, we will consider bringing that to the full commission commission for the presentation. And um, and also um, Commissioner Green has questions about um, some of the hourly rates of um, the uh, health, <clears throat> health services advisory group, um, which, um, which they actually have two new contracts um, that we um, reviewed and the, hmm, I'm sorry. The reason why um, their rates are so high is because the services that they provided are very specific and only West Coast CMS qualified consultants and 
um, can can perform, and also they are helping to develop job descriptions, um, train new DPH staff um, to replace them. You know, like once um, they've completed their service services. I'm sorry, <laughs> and um, and that they're only paid only for the services that they rendered. So, you know, it seems like a lot of hours, but it might not take that many hours for them to complete their job. Um, and so um, you will see in front of you um, um, in the next agenda item, the consent calendar. And I just want to also point out that um, in the consent calendar for the contract report, we will have to extract um, the um, Chinese hospital um, contract report um, separately because um, uh, Commissioner Chow um, have mentioned um, a conflict of interest and has to recuse himself from voting on that particular um, item. Okay. Um, let's see. I know Secretary Morris was going to guide us through this, especially with the item that needs uh, extraction. Yes. So Actually, Commissioner, before we get there, um, we need to take public comment on, comment on this. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I do see a hand. So, folks online, if you'd like to make comment on item eight, the Finance and Planning Committee update, please press star three. Again, I see a hand. Uh, each of you has three minutes. Mr. Manette Shaw, you're unmuted. Please let us know that you're there. Thank you. I am speaking on uh, item eight, and then later I'm going to want to speak on item nine. Okay. On, on item eight, the first quarter of a report notes fully 23.9% million of Laguna Honda's 27.6 million first quarter budget deficit that was attributed to the Medi-Cal revenue shortfall caused by the denial of payment for new admissions to Laguna Honda. The remaining 3.6 million of that 27 million deficit appears to be unbudgeted non-labor expenses related to Laguna Honda certification. The second quarter just ended, and that report should be produced quickly, even close to when you present the actual first quarter report. New admissions to Laguna Honda stopped a year ago on January 14th, four quarters ago. This report notes Laguna Honda's admissions probably won't resume before the end of the third quarter in at the end of March. This suggests five quarters of lost Medi-Cal revenue, possibly over a hundred million lost. It should have been a priority of DPH and this commission to get Laguna Honda recertified before the end of December as first planned so that DTNA would end an admissions resume to protect its funding stream. Um, I'm not buying it that HSAG is the only contractor qualified um, to do this level of work. For one thing, the contract was not competitively bid, and um, it's showing on the first quarter revenue report. And the uh, third and fourth quarter 
uh, the previous fiscal year, January 1 to June 30, 2022, you need to own up and tell us exactly how much Medi-Cal revenue was actually lost because that was not itemized in the third or fourth quarter reports. You guys need to get to be more honest in addition to being less secretive uh, uh, withholding all of these reports from members of the public. Thank you. All right, that is the only comment, the uh, only hand raised for that item. So, uh, Are there any commissioner questions or comments on this item? Uh, I just have, I want to make sure I understood fully what you said, Commissioner Chung. So so what I heard is that HSAG is the organization that's approved by CMS and that is the sole organization on the West Coast that would meet the stipulations required of us, that part of their charge will be to not only give a very prescriptive job uh, description of every leadership post at Laguna, but also to help identify and hire their replacements in as expeditious a manner as possible. And that the contract is really um, uh, kind of the most we would need. And that in fact, we may not need all, all these hours from them as we move forward. Is, is, that, is that a correct interpretation of your report? I think you're on mute. I, think I, I believe so because there are two contract reports, you know, like one of, um, no, two new contracts. One of the contracts actually also include um, root, cause and, root, root cause analysis. So, um, you know, some of these services um, are, are really um, what we have a, a, a time, have a time constraints, you know, to get them done. So, um, so I think that that's part of it as well. Great. Well, thank, thank you for the clarification. And I guess now the next item is the consent calendar for action. And I'm going to uh, definitely, Secretary Moravitz is going to lead us through this. Sure. I'll just note uh, on behalf of Commissioner Chung, if that's all right, that uh, the, the committee um, recommended uh, that the full commission approve all items on the consent calendar. And before we get there, we'll take public comment because as we noted before, the person um, or uh, would like to make comments. So folks on the line, if you'd like to make comment on the consent calendar, item nine, please raise your hand by pressing star three. I do see one hand. All right, Mr. Manette Shaw, I've got three minutes on the clock for you. Thank you. Um, the commissioner just said that HASAG is the only West Coast contractor. That's nonsense. This is um, a, a bald attempt to cram through um, uh, the contracts. I'm going to listen carefully to the audio of today's hearings because what you guys are saying is nonsense. Regarding the consent calendar contracts, the 7.7 .7 million contract pushes ATAG's total contracts to 17.3 million today including that rotten price increase of one million in hourly billing rates of up to 23% higher than occur um, back in June. And as for the 2.7 million uh, HSA, HSA contract to produce the root 
cause analysis report, did that report include LAJ CEO Pickens' admission to the commission last August that Laguna Honda had been follow, following the wrong regulatory guidelines using Title 22 for acute care guidelines, acute care hospital guidelines, instead of using CMS's skilled nursing facility regulatory guidelines, thereby causing substantial noncompliance that resulted in losing certification. If Pickens' admission was not included in the RTA report, then HSAG did a terrible job writing the root, in, root cause analysis because following the wrong regulations was obviously a substantial contributing factor to losing certification. HSAG should have provided the RTA report to DCH in this commission, and you now have an, an obligation to release that RTA report to members of the public can see it now. That is the only comment that I see, uh, public comment. Thank you very much. Um, so commissioners, here's how we do this. The consent calendar is usually one vote for the entire consent calendar because we have a contract that our commissioner Chow has a conflict with the Chinese hospital contract. What I encourage you to do is to make a for uh, two commissioners to make a motion and second to extract the Chinese hospital contract from the contracts report for a separate vote. Once that is done, we can put that on the shelf. The full commission, including Commissioner Chow, excuse me, can vote on the entire consent calendar minus the Chinese contract, one vote. And then everybody except for Commissioner Chow can vote on the Chinese hospital contract. So let's first take the item of extracting. So we need a motion to extract the Chinese hospital contract in a second from the um, contract report. I still move to extract the Chinese hospital contract from the current uh, contract vote. Second. Great. Uh, we'll do a roll call vote. Commissioner Chow can vote for this. Um, we'll start with you, Commissioner Gerardo. Yes. Commissioner Guillermo. Yes. Commissioner Chow. Yes. Commissioner Chung. Yes. And Commissioner Green. Yes. Okay, so I'm, I'm, at, I'm putting the Chinese hospital contract on the shelf. So taking the entire consent calendar, except for the Chinese hospital contract, please um, consider a motion to approve the consent calendar. So move to approve the consent calendar. I'll second. All right, and again, Commissioner Chow can vote for this because the Chinese hospital contract is up on the shelf. Commissioner Gerardo. Yes. Commissioner Chow. Yes. Commissioner Guillermo. Yes. Commissioner Chung? Yes. And Commissioner Green? Yes. Okay, so great. So, so far we've got everything except for the Chinese hospital contract. So everyone except for Commissioner Chow can vote on this next item. We now need a motion to um, to approve um, the Chinese hospital contract. I so move to approve the Chinese hospital contract. A second. I'll do a roll call vote. Commissioner Guillermo? Yes. Commissioner Gerardo? Yes. Commissioner Chung? Yes. And Commissioner Green. Yes. Okay, great. So that so everything on the consent calendar is now approved. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for guiding us through that. I think we'd sure. still be on the first motion if it wasn't for you. Thank you. Um, so I guess the next item is other business. Is there any other business? 
I do see a, a, a member of the public with his hand up, so we'll go there first. Um, excuse, excuse me, actually point of order. I think that there is um, still approval of Laguna Honda hospital policies. Um, no, that's, that's deferred. No, uh, oh, okay. That yeah. was an earlier version that, agenda, uh, that was taken off and that will be considered at a, at a meeting in two weeks. Mm -hmm. yeah, my, my mistake. Sure. All right, so back to um, item 10, other business. Uh, let's see, Commissioner, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Manette Shaw, you're unmuted, please let us know that you're there. All right, thank you. I just wanna uh, uh, beat a dead horse about whether HSAG is the only consultant on the West Coast qualified to write job descriptions and assist with recruiting uh, to fill some of the Laguna Honda Hospital staff positions. It sounds like you guys are making up excuses along the way to justify this contract, but I'm not buying what you're selling. Um, uh, as far as other business, I didn't understand what Commissioner Chung just said about an item on, about Laguna Honda, and I would appreciate it if you would repeat what it was that she stated. Thank you. That's the only comment, commissioners, on this item. Then I think then. Well, I'm sorry, but, but commissioners, you all could comment on this item. It is your item if you would like to make any comments or questions for other business. I don't see any hands. Okay. All right. So then um, the next item 11 is the Joint Conference Committee and other committee reports of which we have none because of the holiday. Yes, but uh, but Commissioner Green, because it's on the agenda, we also have to ask for public comment and there's a hand up for this item. So let's okay. go to that hand. Uh, Mr. Manette Shaw, you've got three minutes on the clock. Would you like to make a, a, a comment on item 11? Yes, uh, I thought you guys had had a, a JCC meeting that you had first canceled and then you reinstated it. So I would have thought you would have uh, commented today about how that LHHJPC meeting went um, and uh, I will look forward, Mark, to you quickly posting the audio of both today's finance meeting and today's full commission meeting. And if you would kindly shoot me an email telling me where I can find the audio recording, I would appreciate it, sir. Thank you. Thank you. That is the only comment. All right. Then I guess we move to the last item, which is adjournment. Is there any public comment on this item? We don't take public comment on adjournment. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> I still need to adjourn. Later. I'll second. All right, I'll do a roll call vote. Commissioner Gerardo? Yes. Commissioner Guillermo? Yes. Commissioner Chow? Yes. Commissioner Chong? Yes. And Commissioner Green? Yes. Thank you for ending uh, for the first meeting of the year, everybody. We, uh, we hope it's a healthy, happy one for everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Commissioners. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Mark. Happy New Year.